Welcome to Fashion Forum, a podcast brought to you by the British Fashion Council. I'm Caroline Rush, Chief Executive. Today we bring you a series of conversations highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community, all of whom play a vital role in our industry's culture and reputation, promoting British creativity on a global scale. Hi, my name is Jo Ellison. I'm the um, editor of How to Spend It at the Financial Times, sort of fairly weekly (laughs) luxury supplement. And I'm talking today to Tommy Hilfiger, the designer in need of very little introduction, but founded his company in 1969 in Elmira, New York. And now 2021, we're kind of looking at a whole new kind of world order and sort of Luxury reconfiguration, I suppose, um, across the world in terms of what is going on. But last we spoke, Tommy, was 2018, which feels like a lifetime ago um, in terms of in terms of where we are and what we're thinking about at the moment. What particularly has changed for you in the last year or so in terms of how you're thinking about the business and, and what you're doing? Well, we're accelerating a lot of our efforts, not only with the consumers and sustainability, but we're looking at the digital world in a different way because e-commerce has basically uh, been a lifesaver for us, I guess you could say, and uh, the the new form of of retail. But, um, you know, one thing that I think a lot of companies are are looking at is inclusivity and diversity efforts. And we, we feel that we are, you know, way ahead of the curve because it didn't take a protest for us to bring us to being a leader in inclusivity and diversity within within the company. However, we've accelerated everything we're doing around it with our new People's Place program, with clear goals focused on increasing representation uh, in the industry, breaking breaking rules and and driving very hard to, I would say, open our arms to young talent of color who would not normally have the opportunities that we are offering through internships, mentorships. We've put over $5 million into just a fund to give mentorship and opportunity to young people who would not have these these opportunities? And this is um, this is an initiative that sort of began last May, where you kind of made a commitment to advancing, as you say, minority representation, um, and then the People's Place programs part of that, which is just for anyone who doesn't know, three pillared platform with an initial minimum commitment, as you say, of five million dollars in annual funding to seek rep- the advancement of representation. Do you think there was a barrier to entry or is it just about opening up the dialogue between yourselves, like the corporations and the kind of younger emerging kind of generations who just don't have a roadmap how to get into the creative industries? And also, I guess it's kind of interesting for me to think as someone who set up your own company aged 18, um, is it is it so very different now, do you think, that people can't do what you did then? Or, or are you kind of hoping to kind of alleviate that a little bit? We hope to alleviate it. We hope to help people jumpstart their careers. And I think that now that we have done it and other companies are doing it, uh, we suspect in the near future that the majority of, of uh, call it successful companies will be doing that. And that we will see a real change. 
And uh, we like yes. to say that, you know, we like to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Because there's a lot, you know, a lot of people talk about what they're going to do. We want to be uh, acting upon it. And we're very proud of ourselves as a result of that. Well, I mean, I think the kind of, you know, the, the premise by which you sort of opened and started your business, you know, you, your first shop was the people's place. I mean, the idea was that it was an inclusive environment, I imagine, in the 60s. And also, I guess, coming out of that culture, which had also been a period of massive social change, huge refocus on kind of diversity and inclusivity and representation. Do you feel a lot of the same themes are echoed? Are you surprised to be having the same conversation still kind of nearly 40 years later? Or do you think... Um, things have moved on, you know, do, do you feel that the progress has been made since you, since you first started? Well, I think there was some progress, but then somehow it stalled. And I think with the woke community now, we're seeing a lot of, I would say, positive change. And, yep. you know, years back, large corporations would be maybe deaf, dumb and blind to it. But I think that uh, the youth now have rang the alarm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, I think you have to be more accountable now. I think social media has made brands much more accountable to the consumers and the communities that they previously possibly didn't have to, because you can see how quickly what the commercial impact will be if a brand doesn't listen. I think we've, we've all seen that in the last couple of years. It's been, um, it's been a phenomenal kind of sea change in the way the kind of consumer-corporation relationship works. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, on, on top of that also, I guess, we're also looking at kind of inclusivity in, in terms of the market. You know, the Islamic fashion industry is estimated to be worth 88 billion by 2025, according to research. Um, last year, you you created a Tommy Hilfiger-designed hijab. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's in response to a consumer market um, trend, but I think in terms of like where a brand is going, it's increasingly important to have a kind of global vision and look at consumers in a in, in as broad a way as possible. Um, is that I mean, how, how do you kind of respond to things like that? Is it is it market driven or, or is it very much kind of culture driven? I think more than anything else is listening to the consumers desires and needs and actually caring about our consumers. I, I think it's very important to really understand what the customer is desiring. And sometimes we have to figure out what they want before they know what they want. But in general, you know, we are now a global business and we have to be very aware of the customer's needs. Are there any other particular things that you've really kind of heard or noticed in the last sort of few years that being a distinct like need for or requirement for have you like have you seen kind of more broadly just trends changing and the way people are dressing and what you think they want from Tommy Hilfiger well I think it's it's uh, always evolving but with COVID the the casualization uh, of uh, the world has has become something different than ever before we are now I would say uh, very casual in our, our approach, but we've always been a casual supplier of, of apparel, but now yeah. we've probably accelerated that to a certain degree. And now we're looking at the future thinking, okay, after COVID, are we going back to the roaring 20s? Should we now be focusing on uh, the clothes that are a bit dressier, uh, maybe a bit more formal, 
uh, a bit sexier, a bit uh, more evening wear looking. So uh, we're always evolving and always changing. But uh, COVID taught us a lot. COVID, I would say, uh, helped us accelerate a lot of uh, our efforts. But as far as the product is concerned, the product now is in another evolutionary stage. Yeah. I think it's um I think it's fascinating this post covid landscape because I think we're all caught in this um really interesting dilemma about whether we're just all going to stay in hoodies and tracksuits for the rest of our lives or whether we are going to kind of embrace the sort of as you say exactly the roaring 20s um um just as we did a century ago. Um but I think what's interesting in both examples is that the Roaring Twenties and, and like now was driven by a very, very young consumer market. I think the the Generation X millennial, I mean, the millennials now nearly 40, so they're not really that young anymore. But the, the, the upcoming generation are coming, having a huge sort of impact on on sort of taste making and trend. I mean, how, was it always that way? Or, or do you think they've become an even more dominant sort of like economic force? I think they've always it's always been that way where the youth has uh, had such a profound effect on fashion and style. But Gen Z has grown up with T-shirts, uh, sweats, sneakers and hoodies that, yeah. that that has been their uniform. Now, when they tire of it and they move on, the next generation coming up will be, I would say, drawn to something else. I mean, we were, we were a denim-driven generation. We needed our jeans. But now, yeah. jeans are not quite as comfy as a pair of sweatpants. So I think that comfort factor is always going to be the guiding force. And I think sustainability is also incredibly important because if you're uh, a Gen Z or if, if you're a young person, you're you're really not going to buy anything that's not sustainable. And you can see that playing out economically. Do you think you, like there's a genuine kind of account like that the, you think the consumer is really looking at the labels and kind of checking to see that the product that they're buying is going to be sustainable in some way? Absolutely. They know they don't yeah. even have to look at the labels because they will be online uh, doing a yeah. deep dive research into whatever they're purchasing, and they want to know where it's manufactured, what the materials are, uh, they, they'll follow the whole supply chain. So interestingly, it might not be the items per se that change. Um, it'll be the way the thing is manufactured and the material in which it's manufactured that's probably going to be the most innovative change, I imagine, in the next few years for young people. Because I can't imagine anything more comfortable than a tracksuit. <laughs> like, it's hard to imagine a kind of what, what possible kind of new product could emerge that would, be, um, that, that would be more comfortable. But I think the idea of like how it's made and what it's made of um, and, and this kind of, you know, huge focus now on kind of um, transparency in cotton manufacture and all those things, um, you know, recycled nylon, though, those will all become increasingly more important, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of technology uh, behind it right now. So in the very near future, I would say that are, are we going to be 100 percent sustainable uh, as, a, as a brand? We're aiming towards it. We're, we're, we're focused on it. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen in the near future.
It's pretty overwhelming. I mean, it's a huge undertaking, isn't it? Is that something that, you know, that's, um, you, you've, you've had various different initiatives, um, just looking now, the kind of Waste Nothing and Welcome All initiative. When did that, when did that start? Well, we, we put a headliner on it last year. But okay. prior, prior to that, we, we didn't name it. We didn't uh, name the cause or name the effort. We were just doing it. And we figured out seven years ago how to wash our denim without water because we found that the uh, indigo dyes were uh, poisonous and actually going into the, the, the water systems. When you, yeah. when you use thousands and thousands of gallons of water to, to, to wash denim and it takes, it takes the indigo dye out, it flows into the, the streams and then eventually ends up in the oceans. So we were behind a big effort to figure out how to break the denim down with laser treatments rather than with, with water. And that was your first, was that the first big initiative that you undertook? No, we found that uh, there were some people manufacturing cloth out of uh, plastic bottles. So we started, okay. we started using that fabric many years ago. But now everything, every fabric we're buying, we're, we're researching and, and uh, creating so that it is sustainable from the very start. What for you is the biggest challenge, do you think, in, in terms of like sustainable production? What's the kind of holy grail for you? Well, what happens to the uh, apparel after it is no longer being worn or used? Yeah. Is it going to be biodegradable? Uh, you know, we have another, another effort that is called Tommy for Life. And we are taking trade-ins of old Tommy gear... We're refurbishing it and putting it back out, uh, but we're giving uh, coupons and uh, credit to people who are bringing us the old Tommy in order to get the new. So we, we think it's very circular, and we're going to continue down that road. We think it's a, a, a great effort, and we're amazed at how people have embraced it. Also, you get to see some really cool vintage stuff, right? <laughs> People must bring in some really great things. <laughs> That's the most fun, and I don't want to give it up. I want to keep it in, in the archive. So, also, I mean, my God, so many ch sort of challenges and initiatives. It's like a kind of factory of um, of various um, new initiatives. Is that something that's very much driven by you? Are you always have you always been someone who's very kind of goal orientated in that way that you're you know, you kind of target something and you try and, and deal with it as best you can, or is that part of the kind of corporate culture? It seems like a very proactive environment. Well, it's really our culture, and it has been yeah. that for the 35 years, Tommy Hilfiger, the brand has been in existence. We yeah. were, I mean, in the very beginning, when we started advertising, we were the only brand only fashion brand that actually had a diverse cast of models. And this was in 1985 when yeah. we, we were featuring uh, groups of young people, but from all different backgrounds. And we also wanted them to look real. We did not want to have uh, hair and makeup and uh, everything looking perfect we wanted it to be realistic 
and authentic. Yeah. And authentic. So uh, we, we've always been a, a bit different than the competition. And we've always mm. wanted to stay ahead of the curve in terms of technology with the see now, buy now fashion shows. We also decided to open our fashion shows up to the public because we thought it was unfair that uh, only editors and retailers could go to fashion shows. And we started by allowing the design schools to come to the shows. But then we were receiving requests from normal people who wanted to come to a fashion show. So we decided to open it up to the public and allow the consumer to click and buy whatever they would see on the runway to have it delivered the next day and not wait six or eight months for it. So that was a big change in the entire industry. Other, other brands tried it and, and it was very difficult because you have to plan way, way, way up front. You're one of the few brands, I think, that have actually negotiated that shift successfully. And it's been a very interesting thing to kind of watch from a kind of fashion editor's perspective in terms of like, you know, this was five years ago, this was seemed so much like this kind of groundbreaking thing that everyone was going to go towards it. But I think in terms of like distribution and 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 messaging and narrative building, it was really, really hard. So you're kind of one of the few success stories, I think, of the see now by now kind of phenomenon. Is that something like, I mean, it ha- looking, looking, looking towards sort of how COVID, you say, kind of moved everybody into an e-commerce platform. Were those things all kind of hugely beneficial to you last year and that you could carry on pretty much as were? Or did you experience a lot of kind of disruption and change? Well, it was monumental. It was very difficult to get to the point where uh, it was executed properly. But we have such an amazing team of, I would say, passionate people who really want really wanted to make it happen. Nothing was going to stand in our way. So we figured out a way to do it. A couple of starts and stops and some mistakes along the way, but then we perfected it. But it, I, I can understand why other companies have not done it because it's so difficult to do. Your entire manufacturing, design, and supply chain would have to change. And we, yeah. did, and we did change it. We changed everything. And does it make you more efficient as a result, do you think? Because you're gauging more explicitly, like, can you kind of respond to the orders as they come in so that you don't, you're not kind of creating loads and loads of overstock or does it, does it kind of streamline you a little bit more, this process? Not really, because you're, you're blind, you're, you're buying in a blind way, way up front. Yeah. You're, you're, you're guessing. Yeah. But fortunately, our, our, our guessing worked as a result of having people like Gigi Hadid and Zendaya yeah. co-design with us. Yeah. So yeah. we were betting on bringing these incredible, talented people, including Lewis Hamilton, and say, okay, what would you wear? What colors do you like? What fabrics do you like? What, uh, what, what exactly do you want to wear? That's another thing that fascinates me because the influencer, you know, the influencer association with so many brands doesn't necessarily kind of translate. But is that what's the key to making it work? Is it about asking them to really get involved? Is that the only way you can kind of make an authentic collection that people want to buy? Because that sounds to me like that's exactly what you did. You're like, what do you want? And then you kind of respond to that. 
Well, I think if you if you look back at designers in the past and what what it, what has happened, uh, everyone from Saint Laurent to Givenchy always had muses, and mm-hmm. the muses would be the fit models actually that they would end up put on putting on the runway. I decided to do something different. I decided to put my ego aside and say, okay, I, I, I'm not going to ha- take the credit for designing this collection. I'm going to bring a cool, relevant person into our design studio and basically uh, uh, allow them to create what they think is cool. And, yeah. and, and that has worked very well because we became fresh with a whole new look. We became very relevant as a result of the authenticity of it. The consumer knew Gigi was actually designing yeah. the line. Of course, I surrounded her with people who sketch, pattern makers, fit specialists, fabric specialists. So I surrounded uh, Zendaya, Gigi, and Lewis Hamilton with a team to help execute the ideas. But it wasn't that our team designed it and put their name on it or our team designed yeah. it and pretended that they were actually designing it. We actually gave them the authority to come up with the ideas. Tell me a little bit about the Tommy Hilfiger Fashion Frontier Challenge. It's an initiative to support entrepreneurs and startups, but tell me a little bit about it and who, who you're working with. Okay, so we have put a fund together to give opportunity to people who are making a difference in society. And we have awarded certain young people with uh, almost like a, uh, like scholarships as a result of um, what, what they brought to the table. And one winner was very uh, impressive because this person set up sewing factories to give Im- immigrants in Europe uh, uh, mm-hmm. jobs. At the same time, I guess another group of people, there were a small group of, of I think, three young, young people uh, decided to build a whole collection for dwarfs because they have nowhere to, to, to find apparel that, that, that actually fit. And there was another one who took women who were, I would say, victims of sex trafficking and yep. they gave them sewing lessons and put them in job opportunities in sewing factories that take very good care of the workers from a health standpoint as well as a payroll standpoint. So it's very much a social impact driven kind of um, initiative. It really is. And I'm just I'm thinking, okay, okay, another business platform connected small farmers to distributors for best practices for uh, creation of organic foods. So we just sort of uh, gave different opportunities to uh, young people and people who were trying very hard to make a difference in society. And when you're talking to people, um, and also in your experience, I guess, of speaking to people who are coming to, um, who are coming to fashion from very, very different backgrounds and have had very different like routes to access, um, how do you think someone can best empower somebody else? Like, what's the best 
um, what is the best way, apart from like giving them a large check, um, which is probably quite useful, but also doesn't necessarily kind of help them with the wherewithal to put whatever it is they hope to do together. So how, how would you kind of, yeah, what's your sort of toolbox that you give to people? Well, I think you have to teach them how to fish. And once right. they achieve one of those goals, they feel great about themselves. It builds self-esteem, self-confidence, and then it allows them to move on in life. Um, and are there other things that, um, the, the, like in terms of like business, are you looking for things that you can scale and that will become kind of bigger, kind of bigger entities? Are you looking for kind of the next big business? And do you think that the next big business will probably have a very strong social impact sort of mandate? Do you think, do you see that like the next big luxury brand is going to have to be something which is like sustainable or its chief focus must be beyond fashion itself? Well, I think the brands with a purpose will be the important brands in the future. So yeah. I, I, think yeah. that, I think that goes without saying. But we're not necessarily looking for the next big brand. We're looking, right. we're looking at uh, people who are going to make a difference in, in, in our lives and help others who may not have the opportunities that we've had. So uh, I think uh, it's not about looking for the next big brand or big idea. I think big ideas are coming out of, out of technology yeah. more than right. anything else. Um, and so just a couple of little questions to, to finish off. You know, you, you must have worked with hundreds of like young creatives. What is your advice to an aspiring fashion designer today, especially trying to build a brand today, because they've had a ghastly year of it, not, not least in Britain, where, you know, they've not only got pandemic, they've also got the kind of nightmare that is Brexit to kind of deal with. What, um, what advice would you, would you offer? I would say that uh, keep very focused on your idea and your passion. Uh, never give up. Uh, don't take no for an answer okay. and uh, stay uh, within uh, a lane because a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to build a fashion brand. I'm going to do a huge collection. Well, wouldn't it be better to be an expert at just in just one area and then move into other areas? So I think that's okay. that's that's what I mean by staying focused and keeping within a lane. So you're a fan of specialization to begin with. You think it's better to kind of become an, say, evening wear designer who later kind of extends into whatever or leisure wear or whatever. Because I think a lot of people seem to think they had to have all the verticals covered. But I think maybe that's not so, you don't think that's so important right now. I think that's a danger zone. Okay, <laughs> very good. You may not uh, be important in any one category ever. Whereas if you yeah. were to focus on a category you feel strongly about, you may be able to excel in that area. I mean, we're looking at Britain and we're looking at London Fashion Week, which has sort of really not been able to, um, we've been un in unable to have some any kind of sort of real physical manifestation of that. What, what do you enjoy when you look at London Fashion Week and what are you missing about that? It's sort of real like lack of, lack of um, visibility right now. Well, I love London uh, as a city. Mm -hmm. I love the old world charm more than anything else. Uh, I, I miss uh, having breakfast in the lobby of Claridge's and walking down South Moulton Street or walking down Bond Street, 
going to Savile Row, walking in Anderson Shepherd, or uh, just being in the, the, the heart of London. I miss that, and yeah. I miss the energy, and I, I also miss the creativity. But I think that, uh, you know, my friend Dylan Jones will be the first to tell you that during men's fashion week in London, we had some great, great times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great dinners, great parties, uh, great presentations and fashion shows. But I miss it. I miss it. And yeah. uh, I would like to come back. But I would never come back to do the same type of fashion shows as I've had in the past. Like, absolutely not even compared to the ones you were doing even like two years ago. I want to do something totally, completely different. <gasps> Can you tell us what? I wish I knew. I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> the million dollar question. Do you think that the future of the fashion show will have to have like a kind of huge digital component? Do you think that's helped or hide bounds the kind of industry? Or, or do, is, this, is the physical moment still kind of the, the be all and end all of what the fashion show needs to be about? I think you need both. I think yeah. you need both. But it has to be new and fresh and different because otherwise it becomes static and boring. Nobody wants that. <laughs> no one wants to be static and boring, but therein lies the challenge. Okay, well, thank you very much. Hopefully that was helpful. Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week. 